Hi there. I just wanted to hop on and let you know that we had a slight scheduling issue and weren't able to record our previously scheduled Engineering Marvel for episode 80. Our Marvel episode will now be released as episode 83, so stay tuned for that. Hi and welcome to Failureology, a podcast about engineering failures. I'm your host, Nicole. And I'm Brian, and we're both from Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Our podcast journey has been a wild ride, and we are immensely thankful for all of your support throughout the course of our show, especially our Patreon supporters. But it's coming up on summer here in Canada. Yes, Canada does get a summer. So we've decided we need a tiny bit of a break over the summer. I love watching NASCAR, as some of you may know from previous episodes, so I'm going to take the opportunity to watch cars turn left for a couple weekends this summer. And I'm out backpacking. But we didn't want to stop giving you those engineering failures that you know and love. So today we're sharing some more of our mini failures. We're going to share six of our mini failures over the next three episodes. These mini failures all come from an environmental disaster series that we did last fall. And the first two we're going to share with you are the Love Canal and Minamata. After a decade of dumping toxic waste, Love Canal was a bad spot to put a school. Even the chemical company knew this. But it would take years for the school board to understand the consequences of their decision. Not a lot of love between the school board and the chemical company. And Minamata is the story of how one small Japanese town suffered from decades of mercury poisoning. So without further ado, here is our mini failure on the Love Canal with the Minamata episode to follow afterwards. Hi, and welcome to Failureology, a podcast about engineering failures. I'm your host, Nicole. And I'm Brian, and we're both from Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Welcome to our 28th mini failure episode. We're bringing you engineering failures in bite-sized pieces. Make no mistake, though, these are still significant failures, but they either have pretty straightforward causes or not enough information available for a full episode of Failureology. These episodes are also just the failure, no news, and no ads. It's like failureology light. This week's mini failure is about the love canal. It's not that kind of love canal. This is, after all, a PG-rated podcast. I'm sorry to disappoint you if your mind went a different direction. Get your mind out of the gutter, Brian. This is the first of four in a series of environmental disasters, which is exciting is not the right word because these are really unfortunate stories, but I do think they're really interesting. And we've done a lot of things that harm people. Well, not us doing things that harm people. Not we've us, covered, we've covered a lot of things that have harmed people. Humans do a lot of things that harm people. And it's we've also come a long way in learning how certain chemicals can cause certain diseases and other things. And I think there was a lot of unknowns earlier in the 20th century, the 1900s. And so, yeah, I think these will be really interesting. This is the first of four. And I got these out of an ethics textbook that I was reading when I was studying for my engineering ethics exam, a textbook that I actually really enjoyed reading. I mean that sincerely. I really did enjoy it. 
And the textbook, I believe, was the the basis for the creation of failureology. So it sure was. Yeah, there was case studies at the end of every chapter, and I would rush through the chapter to get to the case study because I thought they were so interesting. I mean, Nicole, you do know that you can just like flip to the case studies. You don't have to read the chapter to get to the case study. You can just like open the book to the case study if you really wanted just the case study. I know, but I treated the case study as a reward for reading the chapter because I I did have to study and just reading the case studies wouldn't have given me the information I needed. So they were like a reward for completing each chapter. Yeah, I I, realized I totally totally would have just read all the case studies and then begrudgingly gone back to actually like read the chapters. That is 100% how I would have done that. No, I'm a completionist. I read from the start to finish. I do. I don't read things from the middle. When I read series, book series, I will only read them in order, which is kind of a problem because some of them are really long, but I can't help it. That's fair. Yeah. No, that's fair. Anyways, back to the Love Canal. Back to the Love Canal. So the Love Canal was a neighborhood in Niagara Falls, New York, located on the north side of the Niagara River, about 10 kilometers upstream from the American Falls. It was previously the location of a 0.28 square kilometer landfill that was the site of an enormous environmental disaster in the 1970s. So going back a little bit in time, this community was created in 1890, but it was only partially developed. It was named after William T. Love, who was a railroad entrepreneur. The plans for the community included a shipping lane to bypass Niagara Falls, the Love had received backing from New York, Chicago, and England banks, but the Panic of 1893, which I just learned was a thing, um, which was an economic depression that lasted until 1897, caused the investors to end their sponsorship of the project. In 1906, environmental groups lobbied to preserve Niagara Falls and prohibit removal of water from the river. Seems like a pretty good thing to do. At that point, about 1.6 kilometers of the canal had been dug, and it was 15 meters wide and 3 to 12 meters deep, stretching north from the river. The Panic of 1907, which saw the downfall of the Knickerbocker Trust Company, combined with development of power transmission lines that could carry electricity long distances and generate hydroelectric power, put the last nail in the coffin for the canal project. And I think one of the interesting things about researching these older failures is you learn about all of these other things that you didn't know existed, like the Panic of 1893 or the Panic of 1907. It kind of makes me feel a little bit better about the situation that we're currently in because this isn't a brand new thing. This has happened before. I don't feel great about it, but I feel a little bit better. Maybe I'm just telling myself that. In the 1920s, the abandoned canal became a dump site for garbage for the city of Niagara Falls which is a great spot for garbage guys. In the 1940s, the site was bought by the Hooker Chemical Company, and they dumped 19,800 kilograms of chemical byproducts from manufacturing dyes, perfumes, and solvents for rubber and synthetic resins. They were given permission to do this by the Niagara Power and Development Company. And to mitigate seepage into the ground, the canal was drained and lined with thick clay. When it was clear the land would be developed, Hooker stopped using the site as a dumping ground in 1952, and they covered the canal with a clay seal to prevent leakage. Over time, vegetation started to grow on the site. Then 
the site was sold to a school district in 1953 by eminent domain or expropriation, as we call it here in Canada, which basically means that the government just takes the land. They do compensate the, the people that own the land, but essentially they just take the land because they need it to develop it for the greater public good. The government typically doesn't like doing this, but it's kind of the last resort. It's kind of a trump card they have if they really need land for a project. And this, it works out incredibly well for Hooker. So they sold the land for a dollar, so not a lot of money. Um, even in 1953 money, a dollar, not a lot of money. They sell it for a dollar with a liability limitation clause to relieve them of risk and liability from the chemicals underground. And and that's the part that works out really well for Hooker. They're, they're, they basically have indemnity from having to pay for any sort of cleanup or remediation or really any consequences to, to any environmental related issues for this. Which is interesting because if I was the school district, this is where I would start paying attention because they just sold you land for a dollar and all they wanted was to not be held liable for all the chemicals they've been dumping. And my first question is why? Why don't you want to be held liable? You're giving up without a fight. This doesn't make any sense. And ignoring that big red flag really was a detriment to the school district and all of the residents that lived in this area. Yeah, and I've seen it before and there's there's a number of properties I'm aware of here in Calgary where Nicole and I live um, where back in the, the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, there were, you know, chemical type spills or there were there was contamination in the ground and the sites haven't been developed, you know, to today and, you know, in 2022, they still haven't been developed because of somebody needing to pay for the remediation. So even if the, the land is, you know, a prime real estate opportunity, it's very well located. The cost of cleanup, you know, for some of these sites is often often into the hundreds of millions of dollars. And a lot of the time, the companies that that originally contaminated that land, they've been out of business or bankrupt or absolved into, you know, other companies, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago. So it makes it really difficult to go after the original polluter of the land or the original contaminator of the land. But the land still needs to be remediated before any building can happen. These projects and, and these lands just sit for a really long time. And I, I, I'm not sure if some of them will ever be developed just because there's so much upfront cost in this in this remediation. But Hooker here in, in this deal, they sell the land for a dollar and they don't have to do any sort of cleanup or remediation. So school construction, it unfortunately, it breaches contamination structures um, in several ways. And it allows these trapped chemicals to seep out, which which is not good for anyone. The architect, so after discovering the two dump sites, encourages the school board to shift the school 25 meters north. Sounds like a fairly short distance. Probably could be better off if it was further north than that. Playground also had to be shifted because it was right on top of the dump. So when the school was completed in 1955, 400 children attended. And that same year, a two and a half meter square area crumbled, exposing more chemical drums. That area then filled with rainwater that children love to play in. I mean, as a kid, I love to play in the rainwater and the puddles. So even though it's contaminated, kids don't really know any better. They're going to play in the rainwater. Shortly after this, thankfully, another school opens six blocks away. In 1959, more of the clay seal was damaged after the school board sold some of the land for public residential developments 
and installed gravel sewer beds. Then over the next few years, 800 private houses and 240 low-income apartments were built on the site. This story is giving me Aaron Brockovich vibes over and over again. Such an interesting story, but so tragic and like everything we've talked about, so preventable. It's just ridiculous how the school board bought the land with all of these chemical drums underneath it and then broke the containment and then sold it for people to build houses. Like, what were you guys doing? After years of complaints, the city hired a consultant to begin intensive air, soil, and groundwater sampling and analysis program in 1977. In 1978, then-President Jimmy Carter announced a federal health emergency, which allowed him to use federal funds to assist in the cleanup of the Love Canal. And this was the first time emergency funds were used in the U.S. for a situation other than a natural disaster. Congress passed the Comprehensive Environmental Response, Compensation, and Liability Act, which is a long and terrible name, so they called it the Superfund Act. The act taxed chemical and petroleum industries to address the release of hazardous substances that endanger public health and the environment, which is unfortunate that this wasn't used when Exxon Valdez that we covered in the last episode happened, because I think that also qualified. Over the next three decades, a number of public health problems originated from the site. Big shocker which left families with health issues and symptoms such as high white blood cell counts and leukemia. In 1989, the New York State Department of Health commissioner called it a, quote, national symbol of a failure to exercise a sense of concern for future generations. In 2004, the Love Canal was officially removed from the Superfund list. The cleanup took 21 years, cost 400 million U.S. dollars, and displaced 950 families. And it all could have been avoided if the school district was paying attention to what they were doing and what the hooker chemical company was trying to get out of. So there you have it, the Love Canal. After a decade of dumping toxic waste, the location was a bad spot to put a school and a playground and housing. Even the chemical company knew it, but it would take years for the school board to understand the consequences of their decision. Thanks for listening to this mini failure episode. For our regular episodes, check out Failurology wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to chat with us, our Twitter handle is at Failurology. You can email us at thefailurologypodcast at gmail.com. You can connect with us on LinkedIn, or you can message us right in the Patreon app. And there are links to all of these in the show notes. And be sure to tune into the next episode where we will cover the second of four environmental disasters. Bye, everyone. Talk soon. Hi, and welcome to Failurology, a podcast about engineering failures. I'm your host, Nicole. And I'm Brian, and we're both from Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Welcome to our 29th mini failure episode. We're bringing you engineering failures in bite-sized pieces. Make no mistake, though, these are still significant failures, but they either have pretty straightforward causes or not enough information available for a full episode of Failurology. 
These episodes are also just the failure, no news, and no ads, for now at least. It's like failureology light. This week's mini failure is about the Minamata disease, a neurological disorder caused by mercury poisoning that originated in Minamata, Japan, which is how it got its name. Ah, so Minamata wasn't named after the disease. Thank you for clearing that up. I wasn't sure what order things got <laughs> named in there. Yes, unlike Asbestos Quebec, this one was town first, disease second. So this is the second in a series of at least four environmental disasters that we're covering. And I say at least four because one of the interesting things that happens when we research these failures is that we come across other failures that are similar or recommended, and the list is ever expanding. I don't think we could cover every single one of these environmental disasters, but four is a soft number that we will probably exceed because as I was making edits to the intro to this episode, I realized we should talk about asbestos. So that's going to be the fifth one. So I think we'll do at least five and then maybe we'll move on to something else and circle back to these at a later date. I mean, how can you talk about environmental disasters without asbestos? So four, the number four from 30 seconds ago was pretty much a lie. So we're up to five, at least five episodes talking about environmental disasters, possibly six, might increase up to seven. You never know. This is just a series of them in all in a row. We could go on and talk about other things and come back, but I digress. Minamata, Japan is located on the west coast of Japan, almost at the southern tip of the main island. And interesting geographical fact about Japan, I learned this last week, I believe, the territory of Japan, so including all the little islands southwest of Japan that are part of Japanese territory, Japan winds up being further north, east, south, and west of North and South Korea. And I didn't believe him when he told me that, so I did look it up. And there is an island that is just slightly west of Korea that makes this statement qualify, so I, I concur. But feel free to double check yourself. Minamata was established in 1889, and it was designated a town in 1912 and a city in 1949. The population is somewhere between 20,000 and 25,000 people. In Minamata, there was a chemical plant that had been emitting untreated wastewater into Minamata Bay from 1932 until 1968. So, quite a significant period of time, 36 years, that's a really long time to be emitting dangerous chemicals into a bay, into a watershed. And unfortunately, this wastewater contained methylmercury, which accumulated in fish, which was then eaten by people, who then developed mercury poisoning. And this mercury poisoning disease was discovered in 1956. So quite a few years after the chemical plant first started dispersing dangerous chemicals into Minamata Bay. Despite the awareness of the mercury poisoning in 1956, Experts didn't suspect and or understand that the poisoning was coming from the chemical plant. And so it wasn't until 1965 that experts officially acknowledged that mercury-containing effluent caused Minamata disease. That said, though, the plant didn't stop discharging poisonous effluent until 1968 when they stopped production. And by that time, there was already well over 30 years of contamination. Fishing nets were installed to fence the bay in 1975, and a dredging project started in 1977, lasting until 1990. So 
a pretty significant amount of time, 15 years they spent trying to clean up the bay. And they ended up removing over 780,000 cubic meters of sludge and reclaimed over 580,000 cubic meters of land. The environment was pronounced safe on July 29, 1997. By 2004, the chemical plant's owners had paid 86 million U.S. dollars in compensation and were ordered to clean up their contamination. By 2007, over 2,600 people were diagnosed with Minamata disease, with only about 650 still alive today. So this disease is really painful, really uncomfortable, and very fatal. And we're going to get into a bit more of the symptoms here shortly. So Minamata disease is a neurological disease caused by severe mercury poisoning. None of this sounds like a great thing to have. Um, Neurological diseases, not fun. Signs and symptoms of Minamata disease include ataxia, numbness of hands and feet, general muscle weakness, loss of peripheral vision, and damage to hearing and speech. In extreme cases, insanity, paralysis, coma, and death can occur within weeks of the onset of symptoms. For pregnant women suffering from Minamata disease, a congenital form of the disease can occur in fetuses and may lead to cerebral palsy. And those are just the signs and symptoms that are a direct cause from Minamata disease, but mercury poisoning, at least my understanding, has led to a significant number of cancers as well. So there are long-lasting severe effects to mercury poisoning, and that's why it's not in thermometers anymore, because we shouldn't be near it. It's not good for humans. Minamata disease is part of a group of diseases called the four big pollution diseases of Japan. They're a group of man-made diseases caused by environmental pollution due to improper handling of industrial waste throughout Japan. So Minamata and Nagata were both caused by methylmercury poisoning, but from different sources and occurring in different parts of Japan. So Nagata is over a thousand kilometers north of Minamata, And these two also occurred nine years apart. Then we have Itai Itai disease, which translates literally to it hurts, it hurts, caused by cadmium poisoning in 1912. Symptoms include debilitating pain, bone fractures from coughing or walking. Imagine you cough so hard that you break bones. That sounds terrible. Skeletal deformities, anemia, and kidney disorders. And then finally, we have yokaichi asthma caused by sulfur dioxide in 1961, and the asthma presented as bronchial asthma, chronic bronchitis, pulmonary emphysema, and complications associated with those. And that one was caused by significant levels of sulfur dioxide in the emissions that were in the air, and then people were, of course, ingesting those emissions and leading to this significant, tragic asthma. None of those diseases sound fun at all. Um, they all seem pretty, pretty severe for, you know, symptoms. And a lot of those uh, symptoms, I think, are, you know, kind of the, the origin of the disease. It's really beyond people's control. You know, if you're, if you're eating fish, you don't expect it to have mercury in it. You know, same thing with just breathing, breathing something we all have to do. There's sulfur dioxide in the air that, you know, long-term leads to yokaiashi asthma. That isn't really ideal. However, in... 1971, the environmental agency was created, and there was a significant increase in public awareness and changes were made to industrial practices. 
So these changes led to the decline of these diseases and set precedent for private tort law and civil law to hold corporations accountable for the damages that were caused. Yeah, so because they formed the environmental agency and because there were lawsuits, because the victims of these diseases were successful in their lawsuits, they created precedent for future cases, essentially holding corporations liable for the damages that they're causing, which is great news and which is something that we talked a bit more about in Exxon Valdez that we covered in Mini Failure 27 just a couple episodes ago, where Exxon was not held accountable for the damages caused from their negligence and their accident. And that's really unfortunate because they don't have the precedent that was set here in Japan. So that's really good news. They can't go back and undo what's already been done. It's really unfortunate. It is completely preventable, but at least they're able to prevent recurrence going forward, which is, it's not the best case scenario, but it's, I think, a small win. So there you have it how one small Japanese town suffered from decades of mercury poisoning. Luckily, Japan eventually recognized what was happening and implemented policy to prevent it, but for some, it was far too late. Thanks for listening to this mini-failure episode. For our regular episodes, check out Failurology wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to chat with us, our Twitter handle is at Failurology. You can email us at thefailurologypodcast at gmail.com. You can connect with us on LinkedIn. Or you can message us right in the Patreon app. And there's links to all of these in the show notes. Bye, everyone. Talk soon.